Genesis chapter 25, verse 19. We're picking up right where we left off. No time to waste. Let's begin. It says, These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. What does that phrase, we've been Genesis for over a year. What does that phrase, these are the generations of, what does that indicate to the reader of the word? The next part of the story is beginning. It's the, it's a title of the chapter, the, the section. We would title this the generations of Isaac. It's funny, the generations of Isaac, and this is just free, okay, free information. The generations of Isaac, Isaac doesn't get very much attention. Actually, Jacob gets most of the attention. And then eventually it's like, these are the generations of Jacob. And so it's almost like Jacob steals the show from Isaac. That's fine. But these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. So the transition from Abraham to Isaac, we could say, is complete. Genesis 24, we heard that the, the master now is Isaac. Last week in Genesis 25, we heard the blessing is now on Isaac, and then Abraham dies. This is actually backtracking a little bit. We're going to see a little bit more things that happened even while Abraham was still alive. But here for, for the author, now we're moving on in the story to Isaac and how God worked through Isaac to fulfill promises. You got it. We're together here. And, and God put this blessing on Isaac, Genesis 25, 11. And I want to ask you, why Isaac? Abraham had other children, right? Yes? Name one of them, one of his other children. Ishmael. The other ones are hard to name because their names are difficult. But Ishmael and the six other children from Keturah. Why would God choose Isaac as the recipient of this blessing? And that indicates God's intentions to work out the covenant through Isaac. The covenant of turning the Abraham family into a nation. Blessing that nation. Giving that nation what? What is in this promise? They need family. What else? Land and blessing. And a blessing to all nations. Why does God choose Isaac? Why is it eeny, meeny, miny, mo out of the kids? And they're like, put your feet in and, you know, you do the thing as kids. And then God says, okay, I guess Isaac wins. Is that what's going on? It's Sarah's son. The promised son. Here's how you can think about it. Why Isaac? Because Isaac is the supernatural work of God. Ishmael was achieved through human effort. Abraham did it. Sarah said, go get a son. And he went and got a son to try to fulfill the promise. He was the, Galatians says that Ishmael was the son of effort, human effort. But Ishmael, uh, Isaac is the son of grace. This is God's work. And so listen, the covenant belongs to God. He will fulfill it. And he has promised to place his blessing on Isaac. That idea of God choosing Isaac, it's going to be a theme in the passage this morning. God's selection. Okay? God's selection. That's why I make a, a point to say that. Verse 20. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. So he's 40 years old. 
Scholars who are good with basic math have determined that at this point in their marriage, Abraham is still alive. And so Abraham attends the wedding. Isn't that interesting how the Bible, the Genesis story, it kind of gets you here and then backs up a little bit to get you here and then backs up a little bit to get you here. And so Abraham was at the wedding. Isaac, when he's married at 40 years old. And we remember Rebecca, right? We, in Genesis 24, we learn these beautiful truths about her. She is beautiful, right? She is very hospitable. Genesis 24 makes the case. She's quickly hospitable. She has Laban as a brother and Bethuel as a father. But more than that, she is a woman who, when called by God, responds. She comes to be Isaac's wife, not really knowing how it's all going to turn out, but knowing that the God of Abraham sovereignly selected her. And so we see these similarities between Sarah and Rebecca, and one similarity is going to stick out to us in the passage, and you've already noted it. One big similarity between the two is verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. God loves to use barren women in his story. He loves to use women who couldn't possibly have children on their own. So we think of Mary. You know, no way that Mary could have a child. But God selects these women because he does the impossible. That's what he does. That's his business, doing the impossible. And so he chooses Rebecca, and that's very similar to who? Sarah, very barren. Many years, 60 years or more. I mean, she's 90 years old when she has her first child. If you cheat ahead and look at the end of verse 26, Isaac's 60 years old when she bore these twins. That means Isaac and, again, scholars with a basic handle on math say, they point out, 20 years. (laughs) Isaac goes without a child. And Rebecca struggles in barrenness. When Rebecca left her homeland in Genesis 24, verse 60, do you remember the prayer that her family prayed over her? They said, may you become thousands and ten thousands. May you have lots of children and increase as part of God's story. 20 years, though, no children. But what did Rebecca, it's not fair for me to ask you this, because remember when I covered Genesis 24, we skipped a couple verses just to get through it all. If you go back and look at Genesis 24, verse 36, look at what the servant said. This is the moment, remember the servant went seeking the wife and he found her at the well and he said, you're the one, you got to come back with me. And then he testifies to God's faithfulness to the family, Rebecca's family. Here's what he says. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old. That means when it was impossible for her to have a son, God gave her a son. And Rebecca heard this testimony that goes on for a lot more verses in chapter 24. And that drew her into faith to follow and be married. She knows that God does the impossible. And she's heard this testimony Isaac knows this too, that God can give a child to someone who can't have a child because why? Why would he know that? 
Any guesses? On the band app, any guesses? Okay, yeah. So how does Isaac know that God can give barren women children? Maybe I didn't make the question that clear. So the second time, we're, we all know now together. <laughs> everyone's like, I don't know what he's asking. But yeah, Isaac's mom, he wouldn't exist if God hadn't intervened in the story. And so while Rebecca and Sarah have this strong similarity, which is brought out in the text, this barrenness, we see a difference as well. In the Abraham-Sarah story, in the isaac Rebecca's story. Let me ask you, how did Abraham handle the barrenness of Sarah? What was his plan? Starts with an H. Hagar, that was his plan. Well, Sarah, it was her idea, and Abraham said, okay, I'll do it. And he has his son with Hagar. But here, though, Isaac, it's interesting, he's the only monogamous patriarch in Genesis. He prays to God instead of looking for a concubine. He says, no, 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 no. I know how this is taken care of. We go to God. And he prays for his wife. God, would you do the impossible again? Keep doing that. Please, Lord, give Rebecca a son. Look at the verse, finishing that verse. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebecca, his wife, Conceived. Listen to this verse from 1 John chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him, that when we pray according to his will, he hears us. 1 John 5, 14. Isaac has learned that God hears the prayer of the covenant partner of God. And that when we pray according to his will, God answers. And God, it is his will to progress the covenant forward, to give a son who would bring blessing to all people through Isaac. And so Isaac knows we have to have a child. God, you have to do this. And so he prays, God hears, he answers, and Rebecca has a child. As we studied Abraham, do you remember, did he ever pray for Sarah to have a child? Can you recall? The answer is no. He never prayed. Well, maybe he did. But in the text, were we ever told that he prayed? He never prayed for Sarah. But did he pray for someone to get a child? Do you remember the Abimelech story? Remember, uh, they show up in Gerar, and uh, he's like, Sarah, you're so gorgeous. Remember that? This whole thing, they're going to kill me if you don't pretend just to be my sister. And so Abimelech takes her. It's like, she's pretty. She can come and be in my house. And then all his wife, Abimelech's wife, and all the servants in their house, do you remember what happens to them? They become barren. They can't have children. And God comes and he tells them, he tells Abimelech, you need to return Sarah and go to the prophet. Who would that be? Abraham. He will pray for you. And that's what Abimelech does. He, he goes to Abraham, and Abraham prays. And what did the passage tell us? What happened right after that? All of a sudden, everybody's having children again. That's Genesis 20, the end of Genesis 20. What happens in Genesis 21? The Lord visited Sarah and did to Sarah as he had promised. Isn't that fascinating that the one time Abraham prays for children, boom, children. And even his own wife 
You kind of think, Abraham, you should have done that a long time ago. But Isaac, he, maybe he's been praying for a long time or, or what have you, but he knows that God hears the prayer of his covenant partner. It's not going to fall on deaf ears. And so he prays and God intervenes to keep his covenant. I hope you're seeing a theme in Genesis. Who keeps the covenant? God. He makes sure that his word is fulfilled. God does this. And I want to just pause for a moment and pray. Will you pray with me? I want to pray for women who are in the season of life trying to conceive maybe having problems. You, you might have someone in your mind. Pray with me for them that God would intervene and give the blessing of children. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would continue your work of giving life, especially for those mothers who long to have children and who are struggling. We pray that you would do the impossible. And, and where you withhold the children, we pray that you would do the impossible and give comfort to those women. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a great miracle, but it kind of confuses Rebecca a little bit. Look at verse 22. We're pressing on. The children, okay, how many, is she having one son? Two. Two. Yeah. When did, hey, Father Mike, when did my mom, your wife, know that she was having twins? Was it, what did it take? About four months to find out she's having twins. So that's modern technology. We're not sure exactly when Rebecca finds out that she's having twins, but there's something going on inside of her that gives her a clue, okay? And then God will tell her you're having twins. That's the divine ultrasound. We'll, we'll confirm that. But it says here, the children struggled. struggled. If you have your own Bible, you might underline that struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the, the Lord. The word struggle, it's used in Judges chapter 9. The same word. For the moment when someone crushes someone's skull. Same word. Powerful force. Now women, you know who's had children. You know what it feels like to have kicking going on, right? But how many of you could say, my son or my daughter's kicking could crush a skull? Maybe some of you, but it's probably rare. But she feels this violent turmoil. That's the, what the passage is getting at. There's something going on in her womb. And in the ancient Near East at this time, women would take their conception and their journey towards labor and their birth story as kind of an omen. And God kind of speaking to them what's going to happen from her children. And so you have to take Sarah, Rebecca. She's thinking, if there's so much violence going on before the birth, what's going to happen after? And that's what she says. If this thus, why me? The Hebrew is really hard to translate there. It's almost like she says, why? Why would you give me children if it's going to be like this? Do you get that? There's going to be this turmoil and probably bed rest and struggle it's difficult. It's just he goes inquire of the Lord. Inquire of the Lord is always used in the Old Testament for someone seeking the wisdom of God through another person. In Exodus, it's Exodus chapter 18, Moses says, the people of Israel come to me to inquire of the Lord. Okay, that's in 
Exodus. First Samuel 9, 9, it says the people of Israel, if they want to inquire of the Lord, they have to go to the prophet. So it's always someone seeking God's wisdom through another person. Do you, do you get that? Bruce Waltke, in his commentary, he makes a really strong case that as the, the covenant passes to Isaac, so does the roles of Isaac, which would include prophet. And so he makes the case that probably what happens here is Rebecca feeling this turmoil, knowing that her husband speaks to the Lord, she goes to her husband and says, can you come with me and inquire of the Lord and let's discern what's going on in my stomach? Do you understand that? That's the case Walkie makes. It, it's not straight up from the text, but I think it's a convincing argument especially since the only mediator that we know of in the text right now is the covenant partner of God. To that end, I would just ask the, the wives in the room, are you willing to go to your husband and say, will you seek the Lord with me? Will you seek the Lord on my behalf? And I'm not saying that you can't seek the Lord on your own. We are all, as we talked about, we are all priests in a royal family of God, equal access to the Father but in Ephesians 5, it tells us that a husband is a spiritual head of his wife and that it is his responsibility as a husband to sacrifice himself, to love her as Christ loves her and to wash her in the wisdom of the word. And so men, do you inquire of the Lord on behalf of your wives? Are you going to the Lord for the sake of your wives? That's more than likely what happens here. And this inquisition is answered. Genesis 25, verse 23, the Lord said to her, it's so violent in your stomach because two nations are in, whole nations are in your womb. The two nations are in your womb and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So you have twins and they're going to become, each twin is going to represent a whole nation. And there's this fighting because there's always going to be fighting. And the younger is going to rule over the older. Does that make sense? Which is unheard of in this culture. That doesn't happen. But God has decreed that it will happen. So what's going to happen? It's going to happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. That's the answer. Look at verse 24. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all of his body like a hairy cloak. So they called him Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old. I'm a twin. Did I come out clutching? No, I came out backwards, I think. Yeah, too much information, but that's what happened. Uh, anyhow, I have this similarity with these guys. Esau means hairy, if you're wondering. Basically means hairy. Poor Rebecca must have had a lot of heartburn. Yeah, because something like Chewbacca came out of her. <laughs> and the Hebrew's difficult, but it sounds like he, when you read it, it sounds like he was almost saying as he was birthed, oh, as he came out. Uh, that's a joke. This word red isn't, the word red really isn't the color red. Like, like he's wearing a red shirt. It has more to do with like he looked manly. Isn't that, it's weird, but... The, the word's used twice more in the Hebrew Bible. So if you're reading the Hebrew Bible, the next time you come across this word translated as red is in 1 Samuel when we meet 
David. Remember Samuel, he's like looking at all of Jesse's kids. There's got to be more because the king hasn't been found yet. And they say, yeah, the, our brother, David, and he comes walking in from the field. And his hair is blown back by the wind. And the light hits him just right and it glows around him. And we read this. He was ruddy. Or red, it's the same word. And he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. The next time we read that is the very next chapter when the Philistines see David and they despise him because he's so ruddy and handsome and they tell their wives to avert their eyes because he's so beautiful. So what we see here is this word ruddy, it really has to do with he's like a man, like really manly. I don't know how else to say it, but that's the, what it means. And we're going to see he becomes a hunter, and he lives in the field. He, he doesn't sleep in the house. He sleeps under the stars. Jacob, though, he comes out clutching the heel of Esau. And the parents name him as fittingly. Jacob means something like heel clutcher. That's basically what it means. And there's also this play on the Hebrew word for deceiver. It's almost like they're calling him a heel clutching deceiver. Why would you name your son that? But in the name, it's a little bit prophetic on the way he's going to get what God has promised, that he would rule over his brother. So it's preparing us for that. Look at verse 27. It says, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate his game. He loved the food, right? Uh, he was driven, men are driven often by their stomachs. And so uh, Esau gets the good food, so his dad loves him. But Rebekah loved Jacob. So we have uh, a hunter, and pro Jacob's probably a shepherd, some kind of pastoral, taking care of flocks by the house. And there's this interesting twist in the story where one brother gets the love of a father, and one brother gets more love from his mother. And we're going to see that in Genesis, where there's this game of favorites. It tells us that Esau was loved by his father because the game, right? The mother, it doesn't exactly say, some commentators make the comment, perhaps it was because she knew that he would eventually be the, the leader of the house. It doesn't say, though. I want to tell you, Abraham died when these boys, again, those math scholars, they say he's 15 years old. They, or the boys are 15 when Abraham dies. So you can imagine that Abraham testified the work of God in their lives and what God is doing through their family. They know what the blessing means. Does that make sense? This all, everything we have read, prepares us for the end of the passage. Verse 29. When the kids are coloring this image of the, these verses. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of the, that red stew. That's a different word. For I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. This is actually the color, red. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau, who is notoriously good hunter, he comes in from the field, the hunting ground, and he has apparently failed for some time because he's exhausted. That word exhausted is used in the Psalms of a land that is parched, that has no life left in it. 
He's on the verge of death. He will say as much in the next verse. He's going to die. And so he says, I need some stew. And this red stew, it gets him the nickname Edom, which becomes the nation that God had promised, right? He becomes the Edomites. And King David and King Saul, Solomon, sorry, both subdue and rule over Edom. It's a prophecy fulfilled. Boom. Jacob, this heel-clutching deceiver, he sees an opportunity. And he says, okay, I'll give you some stew if you sell me your birthright. Birthright, that is, that is this blessing that we've talked about. God's work through the Abrahamic family, the birthright, the blessing, that's what it's entailing. And remember, they would have heard about the blessing from their, their grandfather, Abraham, and from their father and mother, Isaac and Rebekah. They know what it means, but he's on the verge of death. What is he willing to do to survive? He says, give me your stew. Children, it'd be like this. If your brother or sister came to you starving and you said, okay, before I give you a piece of my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you have to give me all of your toys. That'd be hard, right? But that's the bargain. Give me the birthright or else no. Look at verse 32. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. So we see even in stronger terms, Esau's on the verge of death and Jacob does not relent. He wants that birthright. He wants it to be his. So he's claiming it. At first glance, we feel bad for Esau. Poor guy, right? He's failed at hunting. He's on the verge of death, and his brother won't give him any stew unless he gives it all up. And so we feel bad for him. We kind of see Jacob taking advantage of him. But you know, when we zoom out from this text and we look at the whole canon, when we look at the prophets and we see Esau's name pop up, even in the New Testament, he is never excused for this moment. In fact, the scriptures tell us what Esau did here is he put more value on his own life than in the work of God. That's what they accuse him of. You thought about yourself before the promises of God. That's the accusation that they make against him. And so Esau, as much as he needed the stew, he needed God more. That's what the scriptures tell us. For example, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it tells that Esau is an example of someone who lives immorally or in an unholy way because they want the satisfaction of the world more than the blessing and promises of God. Do you understand? So Esau is never excused for this moment. He should have, I don't know what he should have done, but verse 34 will tell us he actually despised his birthright. He put more value on stew than on the work of God. That makes sense, right? That's what the scriptures tell us about Esau. Hebrews 12, after discussing the failure of Esau and giving up his birthright, the author turns to the church. Listen, he turns to you and me. And he says, we have come to an unshakable kingdom. 
We have come into the full promises of God. We have been brought into the kingdom through Jesus Christ. We should never value anything more than Jesus and what he has done for us and his work in our lives. That's how Esau is used in the New Testament as a warning. Don't take instant gratification over long time, long term, eternal faith investments. And so I want to ask you, do we ever struggle with Esau syndrome? Where we just want this more than God. It sounds something like this, Esau syndrome. You ready? As long as things are going according to my plan, joy is easy to come by. My children are as obedient as I think they should be. Church life is easy and smooth and has little demand on me. As long as I can see the future that I want coming into view, and as long as it's all making sense to me, then yeah, sure, I'll make, first, I'll make faith investments and turn to God. But at the first sign of trouble or trial or difficulty or, or sticky situation, I'm out. Give me the stew. Give me that instant, quick fix rather than a faith in God's work. That's Esau syndrome. May we not have that at Emmaus. This type of faith is never excused in Scripture. And Esau stands as an example to us. What Jesus says in Matthew 4, man doesn't live on bread alone, but on every word from the mouth of God. So as a church, we cling to what God says and what God is doing always. That's how we combat Esau syndrome. Verse 34, then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank. Can you remember a time when someone gave something and someone took something and ate something? Where? He, Garden of Eden. He took it and gave him. It's very similar, actually, the language to Genesis 3. And rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. It goes, it goes down according to Jacob's plan. But lest we only really get on Esau, let's think about Jacob for a moment. In Job chapter 22, we find out that it's indeed wicked to withhold food from someone who's starving when you can give it to them. Same thing in Psalm 146 verse 7, we find out that a right, a right, it's a righteous thing to do to give someone who who's thirsty, a drink, if you can give them a drink. In Proverbs 25, it says, if your enemy is hungry, give him food. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Really what's going on here is Jacob is deceitful. He's, he's tricking his brother. He's not doing a righteous thing. It's not commendable. I don't think you should, children, I don't think you should go home and withhold the blessing to your siblings unless they give you something. But here in this tension of Jacob doing something wrong, but also fulfilling the promise, right? He now comes over his older brother. It's this tension of he's doing something wrong, but God's promises is being worked out. Is being worked out. Does it make sense? In that tension, we find the point of the passage. The text does not teach us primarily about Jacob and Esau, Rebecca and Isaac. Who's the, what's the passage teaching about? God. And this passage is teaching us that God, the creator and redeemer, he's working out his promises and is preparing us to savor and love the Savior, Jesus. Because what we learn here is the faithful know, the faithful know that God creates and elects 
to fulfill his promise. God creates, we saw that in the birth of Jacob and Esau, he created them. God elects, he elected Jacob so he could fulfill his promise. And here's the big point, not because of anything we do, but because of what he is doing. That's the big point. Abraham and Sarah learned that the plan of redemption did not depend on their efforts. If anything, they made quite a bit of mistakes. Isaac and Rebekah have learned this same promise. They need God's work in their lives. And then God, he determined who would be the elect line through whom all nations would be blessed. And he did this when did God elect Jacob and Esau? Once they were born and proved their merit and worth? When? In the womb. God elected Jacob. In Romans 9, Paul says, he points out, God chose Jacob before any of them had done anything wrong or anything right. God chose Jacob, not because Esau was bad and wrong and Jacob was amazing and holy. God chose them because God is gracious. He chose Jacob. Not based on anything Jacob did or didn't do. He chose him because of God's grace to elect a lineage through which the gospel would come, the message of redemption for all, not by work or merit, but by faith. Jacob, if anything in this story, acted with malice and deceitfulness. In fact, he too becomes an example for us of the sinfulness of Israel. Hosea chapter 12 tells us, it says, Jacob will be judged for his wrong. And then guess what his wrong is? It says, I'll read it to you. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And that's just a, a picture of, I would say, self-righteousness trying to get and grab what God has promised to give out of grace. And Israel is condemned for that same sin. However, God still used the evil of Jacob, this wrong that Jacob did, for his glory. For even as Jacob's trying to deceive to get this, is fulfilling God's promises. God didn't look at Jacob and say, he is worthy of my blessing and so I will allow him to be a child of blessing. He looked on Jacob the same way he looks on me and you and he says, they are not worthy, but I love them and I will be gracious to them. I will choose them. And so remember this church, that what the world or what individuals do or don't do never threatens God's plan. Not even evil will threaten the plan of God. It's all going to come about according to his will. And this story helps us know that our redemption and our covenant belonging, it never depends on what we do or don't do, but always on what God has done. The story is preparing us to know that the gospel is the good news of salvation for those, not for those who earn it, but for those who have, it has been earned by God to be received by faith. For Jesus is the true and greater Jacob. He is the begotten son of the covenant of the father. He comes into the world and takes on the role of a servant. The name Jacob, I said in the beginning, it's this heel clutching deceiver, which is true in the context, but it has an older meaning. Uh, Kenneth Matthews, he says this in his commentary, historically the name probably expressed the equivalent to God 
has protected. And Jesus is the true protector who does not come into the world to displace or cast out, but to redeem, love, and win those whom God has chosen. For God has reached into Rebecca's womb. He has also reached into the world through his son, Jesus Christ, the only son to merit the blessing of God, to earn the blessing of God. But Jesus gives that all up because we cannot earn it. We cannot get it on our own. But Jesus can. He dies on the cross, right? What the world meant for evil, crucify him. What Israel meant for evil, crucify him. God takes it and he uses it for good, for your salvation. So it's that you can come to know God by faith alone and not by your work or merit. This is Paul's point in Romans chapter 9. When he's saying that salvation is by grace alone, not because of what you have done or haven't done, how good you've been or how bad you have been, what ethnic birth you have. That's Paul's point. Jacob and Esau were both born of Rebekah. But salvation depends on the gracious work of God to call you to himself. And as so Paul says in Romans, so then salvation depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. As people living under the creator and sovereign Lord, we cannot ascend. There's a fly bugging me. We cannot ascend to the place of God and make sense of his election and really pin it down. But when we come to scripture, we realize God does all the work in salvation. From the moment of call to regeneration to redemption to eternal life, God is doing this all. And all we do as recipients of his call, we come in faith. We have nothing to give but what but to claim what Jesus has done. So the message this morning is the glorious gospel that God has achieved our redemption. And this is the message we're equipped with to go to the nations, to go to our neighbors, saying you, you don't have to earn your place in God's kingdom. It'd be the only place you don't have to earn it. If God is calling you, you receive him in faith and you belong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that this good news, this gospel, would be our anthem, the, what, what we live our entire lives by, that you have been so merciful to us to call us unto yourself, giving us the gift of faith so we could know your son Jesus, who protects us from our sin by redeeming us on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.